So what use is a genealogy? You know there are lots of them in the Bible. Uh, What good is it to preach on one? Well, much good in many ways. But let me just uh, offer an example. And it comes from uh, it comes from R.C. Sproul. He has a, a published commentary on the book of Matthew. And in his chapter on this passage, he tells a story of a missionary Bible translator who was working with a remote tribe, a tribe uh, whose language had never even been um, uh, developed into a written uh, alphabet or written form at all. They had a purely verbal tradition in this remote and rather primitive tribe. And so this missionary went and dwelt among these people and had to go through this very long, as you can imagine, very difficult and demanding and time-consuming process, first of all, of learning these people's language, secondly, creating an alphabet for them and transcribing their language into writing, And once that was accomplished, this missionary then began to translate the Bible into their language. And again, all this took many, many years. And all the while, this missionary was verbally uh, sharing Christ and speaking of the gospel to these people, seeking to evangelize them, while undertaking this lofty and important process of trying to give them the scriptures in their own language. Well, then finally, um, the first, not finally, but uh, this missionary began with the book of Matthew. But in an effort to, to expedite the process of getting it written for these people, the missionary skipped the genealogy in the beginning of chapter 1 and just started at verse 18. Of a, you know, an impatience almost, a, a zeal to get the gospel to these people. uh, this genealogy was just left off. And after the Gospel of Matthew was completed, the transcript was sent off for publication, and then finally, months later, it arrived, and nobody cared. It made no difference to anybody in the tribe. This was very disheartening to the missionary, obviously. But over time, a second edition of the Gospel of Matthew was created as more of the New Testament was also uh, inscribed and then tra- or translated and published. But uh, in the second edition, the, tra- the uh, genealogy was included. And after that second edition arrived and the missionary explained the genealogy to the chief of the tribe, the chief said, wait a minute here. Do you mean to tell me that this Jesus you've been telling us about for these past 10 years really lived? He actually existed? And the missionary said, well, yes, of course. And the, and the, the chief of this tribe said, all this time I thought you were talking about a mythological character. And within weeks, the chief of the tribe was converted. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. And then... In a very short time after that, the whole tribe was converted to Christ. What made the difference? Those verses we just read together. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. And in the case of this primitive tribe, this remote tribe, that had never before had their language even written down, it was that genealogy that made the difference. 
between them putting their trust in the Savior of the world and thinking nothing of it. Matthew's purpose in this genealogy and in beginning his gospel with this genealogy was to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah. That hymn we sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. The Jews had been waiting for their Messiah. They'd been waiting for the prophet like unto Moses. They'd been waiting for their Redeemer for ages, for centuries. And we know that when Jesus came, that one had finally arrived. The one they'd been waiting for. And this genealogy teaches us that Jesus Christ was born at just the right time to be our Redeemer. I want to first point out that this text teaches us that Jesus was a historical person. He wasn't just a myth. It wasn't just a fable or a fairy tale. Secondly, God never loses track of his people. And then finally, <clears throat> Scripture doesn't gloss over the faults of God's people. So first of all, consider how this genealogy asserts and affirms that Jesus was an historical person. That was the purpose of this genealogy, to prove the lineage of Jesus. And that was very, very important. And one of the reasons it was so important is that to be the Messiah, a person had to meet certain very important qualifications. We know from Genesis 3, had to be uh, offspring of the woman, had to be seed of the woman. Well, that includes the whole human race, pretty much. But then you narrow it way down because this person had to be offspring of Abraham. Had to be descended from Abraham in order to inherit the blessings of Abraham. But even more narrowly than that, the Messiah had to be a son of David. He had to be descended from the kingly line. Now, when you get, as you progress through the history of the people of Israel, and then you get to the period of exile, once both the northern and southern kingdoms had fallen, and the people of Israel had been dispersed to foreign countries, tracing people's lineage became very difficult in some cases, in some cases maybe even impossible. In fact, when the people came back to the land and they were rebuilding the temple and they were trying to reestablish the uh, ritual sacrifices of the temple and restore the mosaic uh, forms of worship, there were some people who came forward and claimed to be uh, of the tribe of the Levites and wanted to serve uh, at the sacrifices. They wanted to do the priestly duties, but they couldn't prove their lineage. So in Ezra 2, verse 59, it says, The following were those who came up from Telmelah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So you had people showing up and saying, Yes, we're Jews, we belong to Israel, we're of this tribe or we're of that tribe, but they couldn't prove it. The records had all been lost. So it was tough to prove that you met these qualifications to prove that you were actually a descendant of Abraham, and then even tougher to prove that you were descended from David. Matthew's genealogy proves that Jesus of Nazareth met the lineal requirements. 
He was the son of Abraham. He was the son of David. And kind of going hand in hand with that, Matthew's genealogy proves that Jesus was, and I would say and is, continues to be, a human being. A real human being. It describes him as the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, he's a real physical descendant of other real people. In verse 17, when it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Jesus is included in this cycle of human birth. He really lived. He was really born. He really breathed. He really had flesh and blood. And Matthew's genealogy places him in true history. You know, it's one of the reasons why in the Creed it says that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Because his death wasn't just a fable. His death wasn't just theoretical. It actually happened. And there was this governor in Judea named Pontius Pilate, and he was the one who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. It really happened. Now, before we move on to the second point, consider this. The historicity of the Bible is essential even to our evangelism. Do you realize that? When we try to reach people with the gospel of Christ, we're not just talking about theoretical things. (laughs) The historicity of Christ, the historicity of Adam, everything, it's essential to our evangelism. It's essential to the message of the gospel. Because, for starters, if Adam, for instance, we're no more than a fictional character. Then what we also have is a fictional fall and a fictional curse. If Adam didn't really live, if he's just sort of a, a fable. If Christ was fictional, our redemption is fictional. We don't have redemption if Christ didn't actually live. If the Son of God did not become man, we have no offering for sin. If you take away the historicity of Christ's incarnation and of his death and of his resurrection, and then the Bible becomes nothing more than fables and pious advice, and it has no power to save anyone because it doesn't truly provide a Savior. But if we believe that Jesus became flesh, that he dwelt among us, and he shed his blood for us, and he rose from the dead for us, then we have a Savior. Jesus was a historical person. Secondly, <laughs> God never loses track of his people. Isn't that comforting? He never loses track of his people. You know, one of the saddest, most tragic things in life is to be forgotten or forsaken. Now there's this, uh, there's this little um, brotherly admonition going around pastoral circles these days. One pastor will admonish and encourage another pastor to say, and say, um, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. 
See, the point of that adage is your, your purpose in life, your goal, your, uh, your destiny isn't to become somebody great. It's just to serve faithfully in your generation. And it's just an encouragement from one pastor to another to do that. Don't worry about legacy. Don't worry about making your mark on history. Just be faithful. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. But aside from that, you see the point of the, of the adage, but while we still live, while we exist here now, one of the most tragic things is to be forsaken or to be forgotten. I think of uh, you know, that passage where in uh, 1 Samuel, David and all of his, his uh, warriors had been off in foreign lands. They, their home was in Ziklag, but they'd been away fighting battles. And when they came back, they discovered that an Amalekite raiding band had, had come and destroyed Ziklag, burned it with fire, and carried away their families, their wives, their children, all their possessions. And so David and his men go after them to try to uh, save, to try to get back their their wives and their possessions. And as they're pursuing, they come across this Egyptian slave. The slave had been a slave to one of the Amalekites who had raided Ziklag and raided David's home. And he was, he was languishing in the desert, and they gave him a little food and water, and he revived, and they asked him, who are you? And he says, I'm an Egyptian slave. I'm, I'm a servant to an Amalekite. Um, and I took sick, and he, he left me. Can you imagine? You get sick, so you just get discarded like refuse? How sad. Or even being forgotten. There, we've been spending a lot of time in the biblical narratives about Christ's nativity, the, the story of his birth. There's very little else in Scripture about Jesus uh, from that point until his adulthood and his ministry, Right? But one of those few stories, one of those few little anecdotes we have is the story of when Joseph and Mary, along with many from their relatives, had gone to Jerusalem for the feast, and then they started heading back. And any family who's got uh, more than one child, or I should say, maybe any family who's ever gone to church in separate cars, perhaps has had the experience of saying, oh, I'm sure my wife has the kids, and the dad goes home. Or the wife says, I'm sure my husband has the kids, and she goes home, and they realize that neither one of them had the kids. Or one of the kids got left, got forgotten. Jesus got forgotten. Joseph gets in the caravan to go back to Nazareth. Mary gets in the caravan. Mary thinks Joseph has Jesus. Jesus uh, Joseph thinks Mary has Jesus. Neither of them had Jesus. And they realize after they'd traveled a whole day that he wasn't with them. And they have to go back to Jerusalem and find this forgotten son. I can just imagine the conversation between them. Joseph saying to Mary, way to go, Mary. You lost the, the promised one. He was forgotten. Nobody wants to be forgotten. Surely nobody wants to be forsaken. But I think of Noah and his family in the ark after the initial deluge comes. <clears throat> of course, they know that they're safe from the flood. But in the ark after that, day after day after day, 
month after month. If you can imagine the, the sheer size of this earth, the whole planet is covered with water, and the last eight people on the planet are in a little ark on the surface of this gigantic planet. Do you think they were ever afraid? Do you think it was ever a test of their faith? I think it might have been frightening at times. But we find in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. Noah wasn't forgotten. What about Israel in bondage in Egypt? They'd gone down to Egypt. Things were pretty good for a little while. But eventually they'd been enslaved by the Egyptians. They were there for 400 years. And a large portion of that time was spent, just to use the very words of Scripture, in bitterness, with hard service. They were afflicted by the Egyptians as slaves. But God didn't forget them. God remembered His people Israel. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Just a quick word of explanation. When, when Scripture says God remembered something, it never means that He sort of lost track of something or forgot something. When you'll notice, if you, if you do a word search on that even, find everywhere in Scripture that it says God remembered something, it doesn't mean that He recollected something that He'd somehow forgotten because He doesn't forget anything. What it means is he just, He's about to act. It means He's about to do something something big. He's about to make a change in someone's circumstances. <clears throat> you know, not even through the exile, when the Jews themselves lost track of each other, when their genealogical records were lost, and when some people couldn't even prove what tribe they came from or document their ancestry, God never lost track of His people. Because after they had occupied the land, uh, culturally, they began to break down as a nation. And because of their sin, and particularly because of their idolatry, first the, the United Kingdom got split and you had the ten tribes in the north that became known as Israel and you had the two tribes in the south that were known as Judah. So they were split. And then the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians and the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. Everybody went into exile. But God still remembered them. God never lost track. He still watched over them. And in fact, if you look at our text in Matthew, the genealogy, in verses 13 through 15, those are the years after the exile. And some of those names mentioned in those verses aren't found anywhere else in Scripture. These are the only mentions of those particular people that we have in the Bible. They're not mentioned anywhere else. They're not recorded anywhere else, but God remembered them. There are lots of genealogies, including in the post-exilic books. You've got genealogies in Nehemiah. You've got genealogies in the books of Chronicles. And of course, you've got a bunch of them in Genesis. 
and in the book of Numbers. What they teach us is that God keeps track of His people. They teach us that no matter where you go, God watches over you. He's got you in His care. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. No one falls through the cracks. No one goes unnoticed. You know, one proof of that is found, again, right here in this genealogy. Because there's one thing about genealogies from the ancient civilizations, and they almost never included women. Did you notice how many women are in this genealogy? That shows that God keeps track of everybody. He's trying to make that point. God keeps track of all of his people, men and women, children, from the least to the greatest. But then finally, another very striking thing about this genealogy is it teaches us that Scripture doesn't gloss over the faults of God's people. Doesn't hide them. Ancient historians typically would omit the shortcomings of uh, the subjects of their writings. They would whitewash the chronicles of kings of ancient cities and nations and empires. What a great example would be uh, we have actually preserved in historical records uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib's chronicles. And there is an account in Sennacherib's chronicles of his invasion of the land of Palestine. He invaded the uh, northern kingdom. Of course, it was defeated the northern kingdom Israel fell to the Assyrians but then the Assyrians pressed on down into Judah and they destroyed many of the fortified cities of Judah as well uh, up to the point that really the last stronghold that remained was the city of Jerusalem itself and Sennacherib's armies surrounded Jerusalem and what Sennacherib says in his chronicles is <clears throat> speaking of the king of Judah at the time, Hezekiah, he said, I, I penned up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a caged bird. Sounds pretty tough. Hmm? What he leaves out is the fact that an angel of the Lord went into his camp at night and slew 185,000 of his soldiers and Sennacherib had to return to his own land in shame and then was murdered uh, in his own in the temple of his God by two of his sons. He leaves out the part that his army was obliterated by the angel of the Lord. That's the passage, remember, Pastor Mark mentioned even this morning in his sermon. One angel going through the camp of the mightiest empire of the day, slaughtering almost 200,000 soldiers. Sennacherib left out that little detail from his chronicle. And so ancient historians, and even some modern ones, a lot of times whitewash their stories when they're trying to glorify somebody. <clears throat> but we find that the Holy Spirit is tactful yet honest about the faults 
even of Jesus' ancestors. There's a lot just laid out here for us. The facts made plain. The, the lives of the people in the line of the Messiah in general, we know from reading them, studying them in Scripture, they were flawed people. They had a nature like ours. Sometimes their faith was weak, just like ours sometimes is weak. Sometimes they lapsed. Sometimes they stumbled. They erred in many ways. And Scripture records it for us. It doesn't hide it. And see, what that reminds us of is that ultimately there's really only one hero in Scripture. In the history of redemption, there's really only one good guy. And it's Jesus. We can look to and try to emulate some of the good examples that other characters in the Bible present for us. And we should. But really the only true hero in Scripture is, is Christ Jesus. But looking at some specific examples in this genealogy, you've got Judah. And it says right there in verse 3 that Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you were a Jew and you knew the Old Testament Scriptures, every time that was read, you would be reminded of the fact that Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. And due to a series of events, she disguised herself as a prostitute and her own father-in-law visited her. And that's how Perez and Zerah came into being. And the Holy Spirit, or even Matthew, the human author, could have glossed over that. Didn't even have to mention Tamar, did he? But he did. Or you got the wife of Boaz, who was a Gentile, Ruth. And you've got the mother of Boaz, who was not only a Gentile, but a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. She used to live in Jericho, you remember. And then when Israel was encroaching and getting ready to take over the land, put the terror in the hearts of all the people of, the, of, of Canaan, including Jericho. But this woman, Rahab, <clears throat> she was converted. She put her faith in the God of Israel. And as the New Testament teaches us, she, uh, she welcomed the spies. Because in her heart, she was no longer serving the, the pagan idols of Jericho or of Canaan. Her heart was already in allegiance to the God of Israel. And so when Jericho fell, she and her family were spared. And she went on to marry an Israelite. Salmon was his name, and they had a child whose name was Boaz, and you know the rest of that story. David begat Solomon by the wife of Uriah, it says in verse 6. Again, couldn't we just have left that out? Did we have to remind every reader of Matthew 1 about David's adulterous affair and the very uh, improper circumstances under which uh, David and Bathsheba's relationship began. And then as you go past David, you've got all this line of kings, and some of them were scoundrels. You've got all these kings, some of them who were very, very wicked men. I think especially of Manasseh, the worst of them all. In fact, it was Manasseh's wickedness that finally became so bad that that's when God said, that's it. 
Judah's going into exile, and there was nothing that could stop that train from leaving the station. Not even a good king that followed Manasseh, because after Manasseh, you had Josiah. Josiah is one of the greatest kings of all. He was a good man, by and large. He, he led reforms in the land. And yet, not even Josiah, and all of his diligence in reforming worship in Israel and trying to turn the hearts of the people back to God was enough to make God change his mind about sending the people into Exodus because Manasseh was so wicked. Could have left his name out of the genealogy because we're talking about the genealogy of the Christ here. Why leave that man's name in the lineup? See, you've got the good, you've got the bad, you've got the ugly, all candidly recorded and preserved in Scripture. Why? First of all, it's because God is true. God never misrepresents anyone or anything. Secondly, this reinforces the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Abraham was God's friend, and yet he was a flawed man. David, certainly, the man after God's own heart, the ideal king, and yet we know some of his terrible failings and fallings, and all the rest. All have sinned. Third, it glorifies Christ. Because when you look at this list, and you think of the sins of all these people, and then you get to Christ, Jesus, who is called Christ, Christ is glorified. Because He never sinned. He never fell short. He never strayed. And this genealogy shows us how desperately we need a Savior. It's looking at a genealogy like this that helps reinforce this idea that comes out in that first membership question. It drives us to acknowledge that we are sinners in God's sight, justly deserving His displeasure, and being without hope, save in God's sovereign mercy. And so it points us to Christ. Let me just make a few final concluding points of application. We've looked at this genealogy. We've considered it a little bit together. And one thing, one way we can apply it is don't skip over stuff in the Bible. Don't skip stuff. I bet most of you have had this experience. You get to the start of a new year and you think, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And you get through Genesis and you get through Exodus and then you come to Leviticus. And you have a hard time getting through Leviticus. You have a hard time figuring out what that means and how it applies to you. Well, ask some of the ladies that have gone to the Thursday evening Bible study. They studied Leviticus and they can tell you some of the ways it applies to you. But you see, Leviticus and all those sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament, they point to Christ and His sacrifice. When the Scripture says, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable, you know what that means? At the very uh, simplest level, it means this. It means all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable including Leviticus, 
including places where there's lots of repetition that doesn't make sense to us, stuff that's repeated, and we think, why is this repeated? I had this already in this other chapter, or I had this already in the previous verse. The repetition is there for a reason. God uses it. You know, in the tribal offerings that are recorded in number seven, all 12 of the tribes brought offerings for the temple. And the thing is, all of their offerings were exactly the same. Interestingly, by the way, the first tribe to bring their offering was Judah, and the guy who, in behalf of his tribe, brought the offering was a guy by the name of Nashon, and he is in this genealogy. But anyway, every single offering was exactly the same. And what the Holy Spirit could have done was list all the things that Nashon brought in behalf of the tribe of Judah and say, each of the heads of the tribes of all 11 tribes brought exactly the same thing. End of chapter. But instead, every single word is repeated identically down to the word. Why? Because God cares about your offering, but he also cares about your offering and your offering. He cares about what each one of you brings to him. And so we profit from reading the repetition, from all repetition in Scripture. The genealogies too. Just the fact that they're there makes them important. And their content contains things we can, we can learn from, things we can benefit from. So, don't skip over stuff in the Bible. Drive on. Sometimes it's difficult. Yes, I know. Because I've done it too. But read it all. It's profitable. Number two, make a plan. It's, there's, what, six days left in this calendar year. Make a plan and read through the Bible next year. Or even if you don't get through the whole Bible in 2023, get a hold of and use a Bible reading plan because you need a steady diet of the full counsel of God. And if you just go to the Bible on a day-by-day basis and think, oh, today I think I'll read such and such, you're only going to get a a limited diet of the bread of life. Read the whole counsel of God. You need it, and he gave it for you. Number three, hold to the truths of Scripture. Let God be true and every man a liar. Or let God be true, though every man were a liar. I remember reading recently an article, very recently, just a few days ago, and it said that Americans are beginning to get really weary of Christmas traditions, starting to, in, in greater numbers, feel like feeling inclined to just cast a lot of them off. And as I read through the article, I realized that most of what they were talking about was a lot of those secular traditions and a lot of the accretions that have kind of obscured the real meaning of Christmas. And I thought, praise the Lord. If people are getting tired of Santa Claus and if they're getting tired of putting up light displays in their yards and they're getting tired of all the commercialism, maybe then they'll embrace what Christmas is really about. But it's only if they realize that Christ is true, that he really did exist, that he really did come to proclaim an eternal gospel. So don't let go of the realities. Don't let go of the truths. Christ was born of a virgin. That's not a fable. He did walk on water. He did rise from the grave. He was a historical person. 
And then finally, <clears throat> the word of application that's just comfort for you, I hope. Comfort for all of us. The Lord Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He never loses track of you. There may be times when you feel forgotten. There may be times when you feel forsaken. But you never are. From eternity, God had written in his book all the days that were ordained for you before ever there was one of them. He knows the path that you take. And he's given you his spirit to be with you forever. I'll close with a short story. I read, and it's been so long I've forgotten most of the details, but it was involved a prisoner of war camp. I don't know what war, probably World War II. And there was a chaplain among prisoners, and he began to request of the captors that these prisoners be given Bibles. And the captors didn't have Bibles, but they came across one. And so what they did is they took this one Bible, and they started ripping pages out of it and giving a page or two to each prisoner. So nobody had a complete Bible but most of the prisoners had a little fragment of God's word. And there's a story of a prisoner whose fragment ended up being one of the Old Testament genealogies. And he took that, and he read it, and he was converted. Because he said, if God cares enough about them to record their names in his word, then surely he cares about me too. He does care about you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you care about souls. Thank you that you care about individuals. Surely you care about your church as a whole, as a universal congregation but thank you that you know each of us by name and you never lose track of us and we have a real savior who lived a real life died a real atoning death and was raised for a real victory and a real redemption in our behalf for all this we thank you and we pray you'd help us to walk with you and serve you in the year ahead in jesus name we pray